Kristen Ralph Think Butter, powered by Moms Rising. We have a, another astonishing show for you today. It is so good. We talk about the national budget and how it's a moral document and how what Republicans are proposing is out of step with their own Republican constituents. Then we dive into the impact of Fox News actually being an entertainment channel, not a news channel, and what that means for disinformation and information in America and how you can make sure information gets distributed. After that, we talk about the 911 situation of the child care cliff coming up, where the child care stabilization funds are set to end by September 30th. So call your member of Congress, tell them don't let our nation's child care go off a cliff. Then we close the show talking about hope and change and how we all need to advance maternal justice and call for every single member to get on the Momnibus. We're gonna jump right in with our first guest. We have a guest for you with important information, talking about how budgets are not just budgets, but they're moral documents, people. It's an important topic. Michelle Dalfour of First Focus, welcome. Thank you. Oh, uh, well, let's talk about budgets. People sometimes overlook budgets, but budgets are important. Budgets, so where we invest our time, our money, our resources, our attention, Budgets are moral documents. They don't just lift our economy, they build our country. Can you talk about why budgets are important? Absolutely. Everything you just said, I, I agree with you 100%. Budgets are, are the vision. They show you where you're going to put your money. They show you what policies you're prioritizing. And they are a roadmap for where you want to take this country and what and whether or not, from my lens, you think kids should be a priority in those decisions. And we have a situation right now that in my house we would call a level 23 situation out of only 10 levels. And that is that the federal budget is kind of imploding. And, you know, we might even have a government shutdown. What, what's happening with that as we dive into talking about kids? Well, this is something that interrupts my my sleep these days kids are in trouble well we are facing backwards momentum in terms of our investments in kids and we're we're disinvesting um you know while covid is still very much with us uh we learned a lot from the pandemic and over the past few years covid 19 um the economic fallout that came with it affected every aspect of children's lives um, infringing on their health, education, economic security, safety, overall well-being. And we don't know the full extent of those consequences, and we may not know for a while. So during fiscal years 21 and 22, we saw an uptick in investment on children. 2020, 2020 was an all-time low of just 7.5% share of federal spending on kids. That went up in 21 and 22, driven largely by pandemic aid to almost 12%. We're dropping back down now. So we are going in the wrong direction at a time when the pandemic exposed long time problems and, and challenges for kids and they're growing and they're urgent. And we're looking at going in the wrong direction for our kids. And when we go in the wrong direction for our kids, we go in the wrong direction for our country. Sometimes people are like, well, I'm not a little kid or I don't currently have a little kid. Like, why should I care? One of the reasons why everybody should care is because study after study shows that when we invest in kids, we're also investing in families 
in businesses and our economy people. We know that the work of care is what makes all work work and that when kids do better, we all do better. But importantly, we also know that when we divest from kids, we actually transfer important costs in a multiplied way into the future. So for example, if we don't have kids having access to the healthcare that they need when they're younger, studies show that they will need more healthcare support, more healthcare dollars, and have more significant healthcare problems later in life. It costs more later. Additionally, study after study shows that when people don't have access to affordable, high-quality childcare, the, the children actually have more later grade repetitions, more need for government programs that cost money in the future. And in fact, when we invest in childcare for every $1 in, we get up to $8 back on average. So like this is real money. Similarly, when we talk about SNAP food stamps, which, you know, help many families put food on the table and WIC, the Women and Infant Children Nutrition Program, studies show that for every $1 in there too, you get back more than $1 back later because people have access to food. And when you have access to food, you're also helping pay for food workers, farm workers, farmers, and, you know, truck drivers and all of that. Like there's a positive ripple effect in the economy. Why do you think in the United States of America, unlike most other industrialized nations, by the way, we put kids and funding kids in this weird bubble as if it's like an accessory purse with some special bling on it that we don't actually really need. It's just like, oh, that'd be great if we could afford that, as opposed to like fundamental to the running of our country. Why do you think there's that weird sort of pushed out as a satellite? I, I think, first of all, thank you for everything you just said. I, I It is good to hear you say that out loud with enthusiasm and importance. Um, I I think children are just often an afterthought. And and while many young people today are very politically active, don't get me wrong, children don't regularly talk to their lawmakers. They 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 yeah. aren't part of trade associations, they aren't part yeah. so people like me are are talking to 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 lawmakers and and making the case for for children, right? They're not going to fundraisers. Um but I I think there's more attention on the adults to your point. Um, but the investments that we make in children early on are so critically important. That is when their brain is developing, developing, they're growing and learning. And if we can provide them all of the, the not just the basic needs, not, not, not the minimum, but all the right things so that they're healthy to what you were mentioning earlier. They aren't going to bed hungry. They have safe housing. They live in safe communities. They can get to school. Their schools are healthy, for goodness sakes. And they're healthier. It costs us as taxpayers less. Um, they stay in school. They graduate. They earn more. They, they contribute to society. Uh, all of it is a win. And um, why that, what I would call pretty easy, obvious math doesn't resonate is deeply, deeply troubling. And we keep fighting with our advocates, Moms Rising and others, to make the point that investments in kids make good sense. And we saw that during the pandemic when we cut child poverty nearly in half with major investments in our children. Yeah. And we saw that investments in our children help our economy, help our workforce, help our businesses. We, in the last jobs report, which I keep saying because it's a big deal, um, had more women in the labor force than ever before. That was great. And it's not an accident. 
people are in the labor force in those much needed jobs because there have been investments in things like childcare stabilization, investments in things like the child tax credit, which in an expanded way needs to be re-upped and the childcare stability grants need to be re-upped as well. And so you just led with the Children's Budget Coalition, a new release of an issue brief, the true emergencies, What is in the issues brief really quickly that people should pay the most attention to? Because one of the things that we see happening is proof positive that policies for kids and investments in kids are investments in America. They're investments in our economy. They're investments in our businesses and they make healthier families. Now, a lot of those investments are on the chopping block. Ridiculous. So I'm curious what's in the issue briefing about the true emergencies. Yeah. So uh, a little bit of thank you for asking that a little bit of background on that. When the debt limit deal was coming together, uh, part of that included emergency spending over 20 billion dollars. I think it was to get around the caps that were in place under that deal going into fiscal year 24 and 25. So first of all, there was that pot of money, that pot of emergency funding that was available. And then second of all, you may remember Um, A couple of senators on the floor, real time, were making the case that we need supplemental funding for the Pentagon in 2023 so they could get around the caps. I thought, hang on a second. We know what all the urgent needs of kids are, and we addressed many of them during the pandemic, and we're going backwards. This is an emergency. So working with some great partners in the Children's Budget Coalition, we came up with a handful of topics, and in the document... It got a lot longer than we intended, but in the document, we have five issue areas. We did nutrition, which you've already mentioned is on the chopping block, the WIC program. We urgently need to increase funding for WIC. Um, We included childcare. You've already mentioned that um, there's an additional 16 billion supplemental um, requests for um, early learning and childcare. Um, We included environmental health, um, schools. Our schools are unhealthy. 40% of our kids in public schools have a chronic health condition. We've got to get that right. We've got to fund the EPA to make sure states and and local communities know how to improve the health of their buildings and the areas around them. We did mental health. We know that that's a crisis for young people and they aren't getting access to the proper care. And education. We talked about the education cuts cuts as well and how Title I is absolutely on the chopping block looking at an 80% potential cut by by the way, this is Republican recommended budget cuts. Like when we say Congress, often we say Congress because, hello, that's how we talk about things. But it's all, it's about who's in leadership that in Congress that's proposing the budget and who's in leadership gets to decide which budget is passed. And so it's Republicans are leading in the House. And so a lot of these bizarre budget cuts, in fact, most are being proposed by Republican leadership. And so I was super surprised to see that recommendation from Republican leadership in the House to cut 80 percent of education funding at a time when we have an education crisis. And And this is for low income students. Yeah. Yeah, that's for low-income students. And the hello part is we need future leaders in America. We need a future in America. Kids are quite literally not just pop song, but the future of America. You know, it's not just like a cute song that we sing about kids being the future of America. The the people who are rising now need access to equitable education so they can lead our country and our businesses, our families tomorrow. Like, it is so shocking. You could have knocked me over with a 
feather to see in this time. It's so tone deaf. And that's one thing that I want to just share with listeners. It is tone deaf what the Republican leadership is proposing in terms of the budget related to kids and families. Because when we talk to actual moms, actual dads, actual parents, actual people in districts in the country, they actually support these policies, Democrats, Republicans, independents, um, by wide margins. Overwhelmingly. Overwhelmingly wide margins. And so really what we have is Republican leadership in Congress completely out of step with their own Republican constituents who actually want these policies and Republican leaders in Congress using kids and families as political footballs. Blah! I don't like it. So um, what can people do? We have one minute left. Do you have like a little like, what can people do? Yes, yes and yes. Talk to your Congress people and senators. If you see them in the grocery store, if they're having a town hall meeting, send an email. It, it can be a short note that says, do not leave kids behind. Your budget and policy decisions matter. We can solve child poverty. We know how to do that. We cut it almost in half in a year. We, we know how to do it. They are making policy decisions that are plunging children back into poverty. Emails, phone calls, see them in the supermarket, go to the town hall meetings and say, you cannot cut support for kids. You are absolutely correct, Kristen. Overwhelmingly, voters support investments in kids. And and it increases when you ask them on specific topics like child poverty. People don't, voters don't want kids living in poverty. So that's what we need, a simple message uh, to members of Congress, invest in kids. Invest in kids. And investing in kids is investing in America. So important. Thank you so much for being on. Thanks for all you do. Thank you for saving the current and the future of our nation. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Take care. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. Next up, we're talking about Fox News, the new owner of Fox News, and what it means for disinformation in America. We'll be back in a quick flash. We're going to fight for Breaking through with me, Kristen Ralph Finkbeiner, powered by Moms Rising. We're joined right now by guests you're going to love, 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 love with extra love. Hearing from Angelo Carazon of Media Matters. Woo! Welcome, Angelo. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I'm glad you're on because media actually does matter. And there is a lot of weirdness happening in the media. Some yeah. of the media is masquerading as news, but it's really entertainment. And there's a lot of misinformation, misdirection, and just flat out awfulness happening. So I want to start out talking about the latest with the right wing media and Fox. I'm going to put it in a quote, quote, news and Fox News is really entertainment. What's happening? Well, the biggest thing is that Rupert Murdoch, who's been obviously he's the founder and is the chairman of Fox, he stepped down officially, handing the reins to his son, Lachlan Murdoch. And it, it is actually pretty significant. You know, in a weird way, it's about to get worse. Um, it doesn't feel like that. Usually when somebody has done uh, as much destruction as Rupert Murdoch has done, you'd say, wow, it, it, it's a good thing that he's no longer at the helm. But actually, Lachlan Murdoch is a little bit, is a lot worse than his father. It's His worldview is a little bit more brutal. Um, but I actually think it, it, there's something really specific that's concerning, and that's that you know we're heading into an election. Uh, it 
it, Fox was obviously very instrumental in uplifting the attacks on the last election and sort of fomenting a lot of the false narratives that helped give, you know, sort of the wind behind the sails of, of the insurrection. It would have been worse, but for Rupert Murdoch, he was sort of a little bit more tepid on it. Lachlan Murdoch is all in on this. He is sort of like, it's he's basically as if Tucker Carlson was an executive as opposed to a TV host. Oh, no. So, yeah. So it's going to be. They're going to have a they're actually going to have a lot more latitude to be more chaotic and destructive, at least in the short term. In the long term, in the medium term, it actually spells something pretty significant. And that's it's that Fox's influence will actually decline. Um, they're not really going to be able to navigate these changes in the landscape. But in the really, really short term, they're going to be a little bit brighter and hotter. And that's 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 unfortunate. It's super unfortunate because we even yeah. know from the release text and other documentation of Tucker Carlson that he knew that he was spreading disinformation. Yes. And it sounds like Rupert Murdoch's son, who is now taking over at Fox, doesn't necessarily know that he's spreading disinformation. He holds right. it, he believes it. And that's yeah. <laughs> it's much worse when you sort of, in a way, you know, you're, when you're when you really believe it and internalize it, um, it it changes the the landscape. He's He's very much bought into on, uh, I think the part, the two things that concern me the most about his worldview is he's really sympathetic to Tucker Carlson's sort of like ethno-nationalist, white nationalist things. He thinks like should be with like, and that diversity is actually a thing that weakens societies, that it's bad for culture, it's bad for, it's bad for countries. He really, he really sort of believes that, that very specific thing. He thinks that diversity leads to division and that really you shouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's actually not, it's bad. It's very bad. This is not the right, um, and yeah, he does really sort of believe that, you know, Rupert Murdoch, it's weird, you know, we we, don't, we sort of interact with Rupert Murdoch through the lens of his media properties in the United States. But in other countries, his media properties are not only conservative, um, they lean conservative, but sometimes they support the liberals or Democrat or, or labor parties. Because um, for Rupert Murdoch, he, he obviously has an ideology, but it's always been about power. Um, and so there's something much more practical about it, uh, which, again, is not to romanticize that. That's awful, too, to leverage your media properties for political power, despite the information that might be available. But um, for Lachlan, it's not as much about the power, though that's that's important. It's the worldview that sort of underlies it. And so we should all just be aware of this, because as we get into an election cycle, and this is sort of how I think it filters down, you know, what, what Fox News still has the ability to do is to take things that are sort of percolating at the local level and nationalize them and then inject more attention to those things. And we've seen this in two ways. Um, one, by elevating a lot of the falsehoods um, targeting local hospitals, saying they were performing procedures on children, uh, specifically for on, on uh, for transitioning, n- none of which was true, but they, would, but they sort of took these sort of rumors, this misinformation online, they gave it a lot of attention. And then we saw attacks on hospitals all across the country after that. And the other thing Fox has done a lot to do is, you know, there's this movement, Moms for Liberty, uh, which is not really as big as they sort of present themselves to be. And they and not they, all or, moms. That's this not all. Perfect. Exactly. There's a like, lot of misinformation around it. 52% of the people engaging are men. This is not about mom. It's mom washing. I it's, had to jump it's in it. there. It's mom. They, no, I'm glad you did. It's mom. That's <laughs> mom washing. <laughs> <laughs> And they they but they but they took this sort of thing and they give it a lot of attention, which makes it feel bigger than it is. They put that, that, that of course, yeah. then gives that gives that organization more political clout, which then allows them to get, you know, yeah. elected to show up at their events. So there's this feedback loop in a cycle. So Fox's role in being able to, to to intensify some of these sort of pockets that are happening across the country and then nationalize them. It's still real. And uh, and so when you look ahead, that that's not that's. That's something we're still going to have to grapple with, regardless of, of who's of who's running Fox News. 
And it's misinformation. So that's why I was so intrigued when they were named officially an entertainment outlet, not a news outlet. And but the problem is, in the eye of the majority of the American public, they're a quote news outlet. And so you yeah. have somebody with an ideology running a quote news outlet. And that is confusing to the American public who are tuning in, expecting this to be news. And it's framed when you're watching this news. But it's really an ideology megaphone. And that's something entirely different than news. And I just want to circle Completely. back and say that, you know, the Harvard Business Review study after study shows that diversity is what makes our nation stronger. It makes businesses prosper. It makes our communities better. It makes people rise together. And so to have um, an ideology megaphone that is against diversity is against America. It's against American values and it's against our economic prosperity. Hello. I had to say it. So that's a problem, Nailed right? It. It's a huge problem. And they, they, yeah, I mean, it is. And I think there are very few things that have not, you know, when you started by talking about how like the, about the media and part of the reason I got drawn into this work in the first place is that it doesn't really matter what the issue is, how the news media deals with it is going to affect the outcome. If they ignore it, it's going to affect the outcome. If they give it too much attention and it's the wrong kind of attention, it's going to affect the outcome. And it's not just policy debates, it's culture, it's uh, you know, it's, it's it's politics, obviously, it's it's everything, how we make investments, it's just, it will affect the outcome. And there are very few major things that we've dealt with, and minor things where Fox News, the right wing media, or just sort of a really intentionally ideological media masquerading as news has not had some kind of an effect on that climate change. You know, you can, you can when you start to think about how much the cumulative effect of all of that misinformation is, it's, it's real. Um, you know, it, there's a, a lot of studies have been done to show that Fox News viewers, for example, had um, had disproportionately higher death rates from COVID uh, due to not being vaccinated yes. because they were consuming misinformation. Like there's countless deaths. It's not just like, oh, I disagree with this or I don't like the misinformation. Like people really were hurt by this. You know, Glenn Beck used to say this. He was a Fox News host, but it's something that I think most of my family believes and most Americans believe. He used to say this thing when he was on TV. He would make you know tell this fantastic tale and he would say, there has to be something true in what I'm saying, because how could I be on TV and say it if it wasn't at least somewhat true? And I think most people really believe that, that yeah. like there is some check. You know, no one really believes that you can go on something called a news channel and just say anything. Like, I actually think most people think, well, wait, you can't do that, but you can, um, especially when you're not actually being held to a standard of news. You're being you're being viewed through the lens of entertainment. And there was a, a lawsuit a, a couple of years ago. And one of Fox's defenses was that, quote, no reasonable person would believe the things that Tucker Carlson is saying are statements of fact. Most um, people turn on the TV and they see, right. as you just said, person, talking head, there must be some checks and balances. And there are checks and balances in many news outlets. And this is where it gets really confusing because there's outlets like Fox that have... Yep you know, been named as entertainment channels and are claiming that in lawsuits. Hi, we're entertainment. Nobody could believe us. Well, yes, we believe you because you are masquerading as a news outlet. And then there's other outlets like the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, yep. which they do have checks and balances. And I am here as a witness listeners to the checks and balances because sometimes I write for CNN and usually there are three fact checkers on anything yep. I say, right? That's right. So it's, completely fact-based so you can't like throw all of news out and say all of it's subjective and so it's all entertainment we're not gonna believe any of it there is actually fact checking going on in many many if not most actual news outlets fox it's is true. the outlier fox is the outlier and and that was 
You know, the most, if you're a news outlet, you know, you have a standards and practices team or department or operation that does exactly that. They deal with the fact checking. They deal with how they're going to frame a story to make sure that if it's their, their, you know, their, there are appropriate, you know, rules for that. The sourcing, all of these things are, there's some rule book, like most professions, you know, you have a rule, you have a set of rules that you sort of go by. Um, the thing that always, that struck me about some of the revelations during the Dominion lawsuit is that it came out that Fox News did not have a standards and practices department. They actually don't have any rules. Um, like it wasn't a conjecture anymore. You know, we used to call Fox News a political operation. We would say they look like a political campaign, but there wasn't like proof that they didn't have this. There was the assumption, you know, sort of loose, but you never had actual evidence internally that said, no, um, the only thing Fox News had was what they called the brain room. Um, and it was a place where you could go and get cherry picked data. So you could say, I want a chart that shows the temperature and the climate getting cooler. And they would cherry pick the data to give you a sample so that you could come back and put on air a, a chart that shows the climate getting cooler. So they weren't even really designed, you know, they were using data to misinform, but they had no standards and practices. And I think to your point, that's the one thing that I think that divides something from being news to, to something that's clearly yeah, not news. For sure. And, and to your point about shaping a national <clears throat> narrative, that is huge. Because we have situations going on right now, I'm going to dive into a really tricky topic here, where there are false equivalencies happening. We see too often in the news, side by side, the fact that Donald Trump has been proven through multiple lawsuits to have led an insurrection to overthrow the U.S. government and to tell every person who is voting in America that your vote doesn't count. What Donald Trump wants counts more than democracy in America, which is not okay, with the fact that one time for 11 days, Hunter Biden did not disclose that he had taken right. some drugs when he purchased legally at that time a handgun. So yep. people, when we're talking about what's happening, these are not the same things. The situation that happened with Donald Trump and the situation that happened with Hunter Biden, which again, I'm going to say what it was again, the situation with Hunter Biden was that he purchased a handgun legally and failed to disclose that he had taken some drugs, right? That's what we're talking about. Not talking yeah. about overthrowing the government, not talking about bribery and moving money back and forth, which is what we're talking about with Donald Trump. What's your take on that bizarre false equivalency that's happening because of the way the media is sort of shaping the narrative? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that happened, and, and this is why I'm so glad that, that that you have a show and people like you have shows, is that the right-wing media does have a they're disproportionately large by comparison to national other news outlets and obviously like like more left-leaning sources. Um, and the effect of that though, because this wasn't always the that wasn't always the way. Like when people think back in the day that newsroom, there's a reason that something feels different. And that's because when Fox News was sort of born in the late 90s. And then at the same time, talk radio was on the ascent. Almost one out of every 10 Americans at one point in this country were listening to Rush Limbaugh at his peak. Um, and then, and what they basically did 20 plus years ago is they relentlessly started to attack newsrooms. They worked the refs and they called journalists liberal. They said they had a liberal bias. And one of the things that we started to see is that in order to inoculate themselves against the criticism that they were biased, they started to privilege things that were percolating in right-wing media circles so that they could at least say, look, we're giving credence to your the things that are important to you. We're not biased. Now, the effect of that, though, is that it uplifts a lot of nonsense and it really birthed what you talked about, which is false equivalences. False equivalences really started to become a much more common part of our news operation, you know, sort of our news industry um, 
in the early 2000s. And it really was this result of this relentless attack from Fox uh, and, and the rest of the right. I mean, you know, give an example on how we got it with the Hunter stuff. Since Joe Biden's inauguration day, Fox News, just their weekday programmings have done more than 3,618 segments about Hunter Biden's, about Hunter Biden. I mean, and the effect, now, so they, they manufacture a scam, they overhype it. So it seems like a much bigger deal than it actually is. And then when newsrooms don't give it credit or attention or a little bit, as we saw early on, they then attack the rest of the news media and say, let's see, that's proof they're carrying water for Joe Biden. And so in an effort to kind of inoculate themselves against that criticism, they start talking about it more. And that's how we get to the exact issue that you described, which is that they then try to not just give it some attention, but they try to equate it to another scandal, in this case, a very different type of scandal, one that was like rocks the institution of our democracy with an actual presidential candidate, as opposed to somebody who's not running for president. Um, so they don't just privilege and give that oxygen more than it probably, the more than it deserves, but then they equate it to other things, which actually diminishes the, the real threat that we're facing. You are so right. And we are out of time. So I want everybody Thank to you. follow Media Matters. Pay attention to the media that you are taking in, that your kids are taking in, and make sure there's some media literacy involved. It's hard. It's hard to figure out what's happening. That's why I stay involved with Media Matters. And thank you so much for being on. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Next up, we're talking about, again, the childcare cliff. It's important, not just for kids, not just for parents, but for you. And we're going to talk about it in a minute. to Breaking Through with me, Kristen Ralph Finkbonner, powered by Moms Rising. We are joined right now by the amazing, spectacular, world-changing, nation-lifting Lauren Hip of Moms Rising. Welcome, Lauren. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so excited that you're on. You've been in Washington, D.C. and Washington, you've been all the places. You've been in the news. You've been raising the voices of our members across the country. You've been pulling the fire alarm about a very urgent situation that's happening right now. What's the fire alarm situation that everyone listening should know about? Well, as many people know, we've been in the middle of a childcare crisis since before the pandemic, right? The pandemic really showed a light on the cracks in our childcare system and put an incredible amount of stress on that already broken system. Uh, the federal government invested really important emergency funds during that time that helped to stabilize the field from a total collapse. We already experienced a lot of issues within childcare during that time, but this saved us and communities, states, our country from an economic disaster because we invested funds to support providers to keep their doors open. And now we are at a point where those funds are coming to an end. They expire at the end of this month. And without congressional action, those funds are being ripped away from communities, from providers, and really threaten the economic security of families, of providers, and our overall country because childcare is a public good and we depend on it as the backbone of our economy. It is estimated that up to 3.2 million children could lose access to childcare if Congress doesn't act. 3.2 million children losing yeah. access to childcare means so many parents losing access to childcare means so many businesses potentially losing valued employees as they get pushed out of the labor force because they don't have childcare. 
which means potentially so many industries having supply chain issues, which means what our very own Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell recently said, a lack of international competitive ability of the United States of America because of our lack of a care infrastructure. A lot of people don't realize that when we're talking about childcare, when we're talking about investments in childcare, we're actually talking about investments in all of us, whether you have a kid in childcare or whether you don't, whether you're a parent or you just have ever had a parent. Childcare impacts all of us. And you raise that in what you were talking about when you're talking about the economy, like this is the underpinning of our economy. And the thing that I want everybody listening to know is we don't just have one, two or three parents who are out there in our communities. 86% of women have children by the time they're 44 years old in the United States of America. The majority of us will at some point or another experience a childcare crisis. Now we won't experience it all on the same day, all in the same year, all at the same time. There's lots of generations of people and learning and leaders happening all the time, thankfully. But when we have something that is so fundamentally broken that the majority of people in the United States of America will have to use, it is an actual 911 fire alarm crisis. The beautiful thing about this problem that we're in right now, and there is like this weird silver lining, is that the childcare system was broken before the pandemic, which then shone that spotlight on the cracks in the system. Congress was able to quickly mobilize to do some childcare stabilization funding, and it worked. That's the beautiful thing. That's the silver lining. We proved that we can invest in childcare, and we know that it works. And how do we know that it works? The recent job numbers from right now, last month, before the childcare stabilization funds ended, have more women in the labor force than ever before. How do you have people in the labor force? People can go in the labor force when they can afford childcare. And so for us to rip the rug out of childcare right when it's working um, is just ridiculous. And what are your thoughts on how people can tell Congress, don't rip the rug out of childcare stabilization funds just when it's working? That's exactly right. I think that parents and community members, constituents from across the United States have a vested interest in this, being that childcare, like clean water and safe food and libraries and schools, is a public good. We all have a stake in this, and we all need to be raising our voices to Congress to let them know that we're watching, right? We do not want to push moms and children off this childcare cliff. There is an easy solution. We know that it works. Calling, emailing, texting, Using those open avenues that you can do from your house is crucially important. It may take, you know, 30 seconds to five minutes of your day to do that. And it may not feel like a lot, but it is a lot. We all need to be taking responsibility for holding our elected officials accountable. They need to be working for us and delivering on what it is that American families need and deserve. And the more of us that raise our voices, the more that they are hearing from us, they cannot ignore it. And they cannot walk away from that accountability because they know and we know that elections are coming. And moms, especially moms, remember how they are treated when they are in that most vulnerable state, when they have their new babies, when they are growing their family, and they remember how they are treated. They remember who was there for them and what is not there for them right now. They don't have access to federal paid leave. They don't have access to child care. They are going to remember that and they're going to take that with them to the ballot box. And we are going to consistently remind members of Congress and those who are seeking elected office that this is a priority 
for the majority of Americans. We know that the numbers are behind us and we need to keep pushing and raising our voices. And it's so important to look at where the United States of America is compared to the rest of basically the world, the entire planet, when it comes to a care infrastructure. (laughs) And, you know, we just talked about how the care infrastructure supports our economy. It's the work that makes all work possible. It's also importantly, the work that builds and grows our littlest learners so they can thrive because it's the moment of greatest brain development. And so having that crucial education, early education is key as well. But right now with childcare in most states costing more than college, Lauren, can you share a little bit about how we compare with the rest of the industrialized nations on the planet in terms of these basic foundational infrastructure supports that allow hardworking people to put food on the table, to have children get accessible education, and really to thrive. How are we compared to the rest of the world? We do not compare well. Like across the board, when you think about care policies, whether it's paid leave or childcare or thinking about our care workforce in general, we're falling to the bottom of the list because we are underinvesting and undervaluing the care infrastructure and how that impacts ourselves and our overall economy. We know that all of these things work and they matter. They matter to us personally and our own personal development and growth. And it matters economically because if we are impacted and we are not able to have a solid foundation from which to grow and to thrive and experience prosperity in our country, then that impacts our overall economy. If women aren't able to enter the workforce in the ways that they want, that decreases our ability to be prosperous as a nation. Um, And if we look to many of our other friends across the world, we are falling behind and falling short on supporting mothers in the workforce and doubling down on what we know are public good measures in order to be able to be a competitive, prosperous country in the world. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And we see that every day in our economy. What kind of return on investment does investing in early learning get? I think there are many studies out there that show that there is a huge return on investment, anywhere from eight upwards to $12 of every dollar invested in early childhood. It's also important, as you mentioned before, that this is really like an investment in such a prime time of life. Early childhood is a time of unparalleled growth. And we can either take that opportunity and invest in it and give children and families everything that they need in order to have that solid foundation. Um, or, Or we can choose to walk away from that responsibility and that opportunity, and that will have impacts. That has impacts on our economy. It has impacts in K-12. It has impacts in health. And those are big numbers. But also, if you think about the actual person that experiences that, like those are real children and families who we are actively not investing in their opportunity. And that hurts all of us, right? It hurts our economy and our ability to be um, the best that we can. Sometimes it's helpful to hear some stories of moms who've been experiencing the childcare struggle on the front lines. And there are many moms who are. And to that end, you just led a effort to get every single member, Democrat and Republican of the U.S. Congress, a book of stories from moms in every state in our country about what's really happening with childcare. Because sometimes the work of care, childcare, is really like the silent crisis. People don't talk about it a lot. Are there any stories that stick with you and why are stories important? Oh, there we hear these stories 
every single day. I hear it in my work life. I hear it in my personal life. And there are some very consistent themes, right? People are struggling to find care. They're struggling to afford care. They're worried that their provider will not be there in six months or tomorrow because of the economic pressures and the broken system. They're worried about how they're going to make ends meet. They're worried about taking a higher position at work with a raise because it may impact their childcare benefits and then they wouldn't have any and they would still not be able to afford childcare. These are such common stories and the heartbreaking but also powerful piece of that is that this tells us that this is not an epidemic of personal failings. It is not one individual's fault that they can't figure out childcare. This is a systemic issue. It's a failure of policy to address what is actually happening for families. And the opportunity and the power in this is that once one person steps into that vulnerability to say like, this isn't working for me. It doesn't feel good. It isn't right. And that this is really, this is making it hard for me. That opens up the space for other people to see themselves in that story and to realize that they're not alone and that there is power in their experience, that it is not just a personal failing, but that there is hope and community and power to be built to take that to our elected leaders for them to solve, for them to deliver for us. And the more that we're able to share our stories, the more that we can show the full breadth of the issue and continue to push for change and achieve change. 100%. We have two minutes left. In the last two minutes, hopefully everybody's been fired up about the need to advocate for childcare. You shared some tips. You shared that calls matter. What is your top tip that you see people using that you see actually making change because along the way you've actually won a tremendous amount of federal and state policies. So what do you, if somebody had limited time, what is the most important thing that they can do? I think whatever time that you have is one valuable and two, take that action, whether it is going through an organization that you are affiliated with, like Moms Rising, where you are making the call or you are signing the petition or you are sending an email, that one thing makes a difference if you are sharing your story. If you're just talking to your neighbor about it and passing it on, those things matter because they stack up. So take that one action, take that one step and know that you are joined by millions of other moms and parents across the country. Um, and it's just about us each taking that step, right? So it may feel small. It may feel like you can't do more. And that's okay. We're all here together. And it's our job to open up those avenues so that people can access their elected officials in the capacity that they can. And the more of us that do that is additive and overall is an impact together. And and we're not just making up that it's an impact. We saw these child care stabilization funds move forward during the pandemic because of the leadership of people like Lauren, who's on with us right now, and the stories, the calls, the texts, the reaching out to members of Congress from people like you listeners. So we know from evidence in the past that your voice actually does make a difference. So we need it again. Uh, we need it again and again. So take a moment, call your member of Congress, tell them to support the continuation of the child care stabilization funds or say, don't let there be a child care cliff. That might be easier. And do that, please, in the next week. Thank you so much for being on, Lauren. Thank you for all you do. Thank you for saving child care and much more in our country. Thank you. 
We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. Next up, we're talking about how every member of Congress needs to get on the bus. That's the Momnibus. We'll be back in just a moment. We're going to fight for love. with me, Kristen Ralphing Finer, powered by Moms Rising. We are so, 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 so lucky to have with us an amazing leader, Tina Sherman of Moms Rising. Welcome, Tina. Thank you, Kristen. So good to be here. I'm glad you're here. I want to start out with something because you work a tremendous amount of effective campaigns in maternal justice which is one of the saddest areas to be working. We're going to talk about some of that later because we're talking about maternal mortality. We're talking about infant health and mortality. We're talking about a crisis in our nation that is devastating. Um, when you're working, what brings you hope? Oh, it's a great question. Um, our members bring me hope um, because they so courageously share their stories and are even when their stories come from places of real pain um and loss and sorrow um and then sometimes frustration sometimes just frustration maybe i should say um they share them in the hopes that no other parent has to ever go through it again um and that that brings i don't know if joy is the right word um but definitely gives me hope maybe that's that brings me hope um, is other parents willing to put themselves out there in order to ensure that no other family has to go through what they have gone through courageous and brave it's so courageous it's so brave and it does bring up this idea of you know parenting is often more than about parenting your own kids or your own mm -hmm. household right like and a lot yeah. of people lament like this whole idea of it takes a village to raise a kid. We don't have that village in many ways because of a number of factors. But when you get together to advocate for other parents who you don't even know, mm -hmm. that's creating a community in a very special way that yeah. really is, um, it is, it's hopeful. It's very hopeful. So by the way, listeners, thank you for being engaged. Thank you for advocating, not just for you, but for, for other parents around. And when we're advocating for the parents of the country, which is a lot of people, there are 76 yes. million mom voters in America alone. That's a lot of people. That's only That's a lot of people. Um, what do you find is the outcome when people are advocating not just for themselves, but for policies that lift every parent in the country? Well, you just mentioned voters, right? I mean, we have people who are engaged, um, who want to, who believe um in the american dream and who believe that by lending their voice um they can help others achieve the american dream um so i think you know when we we think about when people raise their voices um they're empowered um and empowered to um really see a change and i, I think we see that um you know once they're they're talking with us and sharing their story with us, maybe writing their story in an op-ed, maybe testifying before Congress, um, maybe just dropping it in, you know, in our, in our online submission form um, that we include in a storybook. Um, 
their level of engagement um, just really lends to the conversation and um, the change. And I, I, I see, I see them being empowered and that is an awfully amazing thing to see. Yeah. It's amazing. The yes. Being empowered, sometimes moving on to run for office, definitely yes. change, you know, moving policy change. That's one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, as you become empowered yourself and become empowered with a whole bunch of other people, the actual real change happens. And you have been right on center stage with some significant real change that has happened recently in no small yes. part because people stood up and advocated not just for their own families, but for families around them. And do you want to share some of the highlights of that? Like, what are the wins? Yeah. yeah. So, gosh, we don't get to talk about the wins often, do we? Um, we have had some really phenomenal wins um, in the last, um, in the, within the last year for uh, maternal health. Um, we celebrated the uh, Pump for Nursing Mothers Act, allowing um, workers to have um, both the time and space to be able to pump um, pump human milk. Um, and um, the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, which is really a broad ranging, I, I love the way our partners at A Better Balance um, talk about it, um, broad ranging civil rights legislation, um, allowing mothers um, and, and pregnant people um, the rights that they did not have before um, uh, in the workplace. Um, just huge. Um, again, pregnant workers, um, whether it's to be able to sit down um, during their shifts um, if they need to or carry a water bottle, um, change their uniform um, so that to accommodate that growing belly, um, you know, really simple things um, that were not permitted before. Um, just phenomenal. So huge huge wins um, for pregnant and lactating workers. Giant, giant. Okay, so we know that our voices are powerful. We know that our voices are uplifting, not just our families, but families around us. And we know that when we raise our voices, we can make significant change. We also know that we're facing significant challenges. Yes. And I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about the challenges. What is the state of maternal health in America? Yeah, so those are two, like I said, two huge wins. Um, but we, we still are facing a, a maternal health crisis in this country. And um, it's abhorrent, right? We're the, the, um, the apple of the eye um, and, so many um, and so many for so many people. Um, but when it comes to maternal health, we are dragging behind the, the rest of the world. Um, we know that black women in particular um, are um, three to four times more likely to die um, than their um, maternity related causes than their white counterparts. Um, and we know that um, the majority of deaths, almost 80% of deaths, uh, maternal deaths could be prevented. 80% um, is a lot. Uh, and it's outrageous. And um, we have a lot of work to do um to address this maternal health crisis what can be done uh, one of the things we are advocating uh, for here at moms rising is um the black maternal health omnibus um it's a collection of uh 12 bills um really slated to address um a wide range of issues affecting uh, maternal health and black maternal health um in particular um just a few highlights um are 
growing and a diversifying the um, perinatal workforce, um, making critical investments in um, community-based um, organizations that really help to address um, uh, social determinants of health, like housing and transportation, nutrition, um, and of course, addressing maternal mental health, um, which we don't talk about nearly enough as well. Um, and, you know, you, you, you go, um, when you're going to your prenatal appointments, um, you know, you're screened, you take that really nasty orange juice, at least it was really, it was orange for me, and it was really nasty for me, um, for, um, to check your blood sugars, uh, for gestational diabetes, but um, we don't have similar screenings for maternal mental health, and it's actually more prevalent um, than um, gestational diabetes. So maternal mental health, again, is really critical. And so uh, the Black Maternal Health Momnibus will really, um, really takes a comprehensive approach. Um, it's groundbreaking, led by uh, Congresswoman Alma Adams uh, from North Carolina and Congresswoman Lauren Underwood from Illinois. Um, ground uh, groundbreaking pieces of legislation to address the crisis. It's so important. How can people who are listening help support it? Yeah, no, please um, join us at momsrising.org and sign um, our petition um, in support, urging Congress to uh, to pass the to pass the legislation. Um, we're really excited that you know Congress is right now um, excited. Is that the right word? Um, they're in the middle of a budget fight. Um, I don't know if excited is the right word, but I'm excited that they are talking about a budget. How about let's go there? We, yeah. the, the budget crisis is a whole issue, but excited they're talking about a budget. Um, and some of these pieces could absolutely be included. Um, some of the pieces of the omnibus could absolutely be included. Um, so yeah, please sign our petition um, in support of the Black Maternal Health Momnibus. If you have a story to tell, um, we'd love to hear your story uh, because Congress does not <laughs> represent, um, does not look like us that are sitting on the screen um, and um, and are, are listening to the show. And um, they really need to hear our stories. So um, if you have a story to share, please um, consider sharing your story. I'm so glad you brought up that Congress does not yet reflect yes. who we are as a nation or who we are as moms, right? And yes. so there is an incredible lack of diversity and political parity in Congress still. Um, last time I looked, we ranked 97th of all nations in terms of political parity between genders. That's ridiculous. That means there 97th? are 97th. Yeah, 97th. That means there's 96 other countries who are doing like way better than us with political parity. That means we have a long way to go. And so when we have a long way to go, the silent crises or the crises that are often silenced, I should say, are often just not seen, not heard. Yes. And then when legislation starts to happen, as it does, thankfully, often there's unintended consequences because that legislation leaves out whole giant groups of the United States of America, often moms, often BIPOC moms, often people who are having babies, right? Just completely left out. And there is a disproportionate impact ripple effect of being left out um, that a lot of people don't know about. And it adds up, honestly, to lives lost. It adds up to those stats yes, you just shared about uh, maternal morbidity or maternal deaths and that we're the only World Health Organization with rising maternal morbidity or maternal deaths not yes. falling. That's ridiculous. We need to stop that immediately. We know how to stop it. Doesn't yeah. take rocket science. We need the omnibus. So 
you know, I, I, I raise that because I think, you know, there's multifaceted solutions are needed. We also need more people to run for office who are not, as it is often uh, stated, pale, male, and stale. <laughs> I have not heard that, and I'm going to be using that. Yes, pale, male, and stale. Yes. Yes. So if you're listening and you're not pale, male, and stale, and you're thinking about running for office, you know, think two times, three times, four times about that. But importantly, not everybody can run for office, has the time, has the passion, has the motivation. Um, so if you know somebody who you're like, that person would be excellent, reach out to them and know something really important. In studies, it shows that people who are women often have to be asked seven times to run for office, um, many more times than uh, expected. So if you have somebody around you who's like, okay, that person would be great. Just, you know, get seven of your friends and form a little kitchen cabinet and get all seven of you to ask them to run for office. That's a side. Uh, <laughs> I that I love that tangent. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but we only have one minute left. And if people could do one thing, what should they do? I really I really want the mom and the bus to pass yesterday. So if people I don't know what your one thing is. Their one thing. I, I really want them to pick up the phone and call Congress. Call Congress and tell them that we need the omnibus. If you can only do one thing, do that one thing. So call them up and say, get on the bus, member of Congress. Get yes. on the omnibus immediately. And, yeah. you know, it's pretty easy to call. You're not going to talk to your member of Congress, so don't be worried. You'll just call up and you'll talk to somebody on staff and you'll say, hi, I would like to leave a message for my member of Congress. Please tell them to move forward the omnibus immediately. That's it. That's it. That's it. Tell me city and state, that's it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's true. They'll probably ask you your city and state. <laughs> you're right. You're right. Exactly right. Yes. Of course you're right. You're always right. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you Thank for you. all that you do every day. Thank you for bringing hope and change to a really big emergency. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's it for our show today. Thanks so much for tuning in as we tackle the top topics facing our nation in a way that requires the most boring disclaimer in the history of planet Earth. Here goes. Views expressed on this show are those of the individual speakers and should not be attributed to Moms Rising, to this station, or to any news or social media service that may disseminate a recording of this show to the public or to any segment of the public. Boom! We'll catch you next week. We're gonna fight for